This is episode number 313, Endurance Sports Science with Dr. Steven Seiler. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia. And if you're new around here, I am a world and multi-time national champion in mountain biking, and I still race professionally. I'm a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two little kids, and I own my own business. And if you're not new around here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm so grateful that you are a part of this awesome community and that we get to learn and grow together. I think that's one of the things that distinguishes champions. In our work, we've had the luxury of being able to measure a lot of Olympic gold medalists and so forth. And one of the things that distinguishes them is, number one, they have what I call intensity discipline. You know, they plan the work and work the plan. So if, if today's plan is a three-hour easy ride, then they keep it easy. And they're not going to let some showboat that cycles by them, you know, <laughs> you know that says, ha, ah, I just w- went by the gold medalist. They don't care because they know what they're good for. So that's one thing is intensity discipline. But the other thing they do is they triangulate. Us science folks, we like triangulation, meaning that we use two or three different methodologies. So what I want to help my athlete do is calibrate their perception with some numbers. We are just fresh off our trip from Colorado, and it was awesome there. We went for about a month and started our trip in Boulder, Colorado for about a week and a half. And it was great to connect with the community and get to ride with some of my friends. And then after that, we went to Steamboat Springs, Colorado, where I did the Emerald Mountain Epic as a relay and got second place with my teammate, Shelly Peachel. And then after that, we were off to Breckenridge to the very high altitude. And it was really funny because I went on a ride yesterday and the maximum elevation of my ride was 387 feet. And just a few days ago, the maximum elevation I was at was at almost 12,700 feet. So to be 12,000 feet higher than where I am riding today was pretty funny. I grew up at altitude and I lived in Colorado for nine years. And I've also done the highest, done in one, I guess, the highest mountain bike race in the world called the Yak Attack in Nepal. So I'm no stranger to high altitude, but every time I have raced at altitude, for the most part, I have lived at altitude. So it was a, it wasn't a rude awakening, but it was definitely an awakening of how difficult it is and how much, how much there's a performance detriment whenever you're racing at altitude. And it was kind of fun to come home because I didn't realize how... I don't want to use negative words, but how bad it felt, how challenging it felt whenever I was riding up hills there. Because here, I just ride up a hill and it felt weird. I wouldn't be choked and breathing really hard. So I'm glad to be home. The Breck Epic was an amazing race. I've done it twice. I did it in 2010 and 2011. And it was really fun to be back in my community. And it meant so much to hear your cheers and to see you all out there on the course. And I took second place to Katarina Nash, and it was a really fun week. I thoroughly enjoyed myself and found myself wishing that the race was going to go longer and longer. And that doesn't always happen in stage races. Usually I'm pretty relieved when it's over. Maybe it's a combination of getting to just go out and be me and only have to focus on bike racing because having kids, especially little kids, means that it's all encompassing and the bike is almost a break from being a mom. So maybe I wish that the the race was going to go longer for one of those reasons. I've taken a slight break from my newsletter, but I will be starting that up again very soon. And that is at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. I send out articles on how to be your best self. Where's the crossover between performance and well-being? And that is what this podcast is about. That is what everything that I do is about because sometimes those things can be mutually exclusive and it could be at the one could be at the cost of another. But I believe that they can be combined and you can focus on well-being and you can focus on high performance And that means things like healthy striving. That means things like having goals that don't feel empty whenever you're done. So go to sonyalooney.com slash newsletter to sign up for that. And make sure you're following along on Instagram as well. That is at sonyalooney. And that is more focused on bike stuff. But I try to weave in a bunch of those lessons in my posts. I want to thank today's sponsor, Industry 9. Whenever I'm out riding my bike on the trail, the number one comment people make, and it happens every single ride, is, Wow, nice spokes. And the reason that they say that is because I have aluminum anodized spokes that are multicolor. And if you go to industry9.com, they have mountain bike wheels, they have gravel wheels, they have road wheels, and you can customize your wheels 
with 11 different spoke colors. You can get the highest quality bearings in their hubs. These, I can't say enough things about these wheels. And I'm currently riding the Ultralight 280 Carbon on my race bikes, but I also have a set of the Enduro wheels, and those are pretty cool too. So go to industry9.com for the best wheels. They are made in the USA, made in North Carolina, super high quality, really great people. And if you are looking for a wheel upgrade, which is the best upgrade you can make in, to your bike, in my opinion, because number one, rotational weight matters. And that is going to be the biggest bang for your buck if you're trying to lighten up the load or make things a little bit easier on yourself on the climbs. And also wheels are kind of important. If you have a wheel that's not performing properly, a hub that breaks or a, a rim that breaks, I've been there before, not with these wheels, that's going to ruin your day. So make sure that you pick up a, a wheel set that you can trust and a wheel set that gives you high performance. Go to industry9.com. So let's talk about today's guest. I was really excited to get Dr. Steven Seiler on the podcast because he's pretty much the godfather of endurance sports science. He is based in Norway and he has worked with so many different athletes. And if you just go to Google Scholar and type in his name, you will get a lot of information that is all very, really, very interesting. He is a professor in sports science at the University of Adger, if I'm pronouncing that right. It's internationally known for its research publications and lectures about organization and endurance training and intensity distribution. So what do I mean by intensity distribution? That means how hard you should go and how often you should go that hard or even how easy you should go. And that should be probably more prominent is most people ride too hard most of the time. His work has influenced international research around training intensity distribution and the polarized training model. If you're familiar with Training Peaks, you might have noticed that there are different polarized models that you can subscribe to. And his is all about the three zone model. We didn't get too much into the weeds with the sports science here because I didn't want to get too geeky, but I wanted to give you a great overview of what his research encompasses and what intensity distribution looks like when it comes to training and some of the biggest mistakes that people are making. His work includes descriptive and experimental approaches where he's investigated cyclists, rowers, cross-country skiers, orienteers, and distance runners. So his body of work isn't just with cyclists, it is, it's with a lot of different endurance athletes. He has published over 100 peer-reviewed publications and written over 100 science articles about exercise physiology and the training process, and is a founding editorial board member of the International Journey of Sports Physiology and Performance. While he's based in Norway, Dr. Seiler grew up in the U.S. and earned his doctoral degree from the University of Texas at Austin, but has lived and worked in Norway for 20 years. In today's podcast, Dr. Seiler and I talk about what separates champions and the things that champions focus on. We talk about data and how you can have a good relationship with data because there is a lot of data that is available at our fingertips these days. We talk about periodized training, moderation zones, and so much more. If you're even a little bit interested in training or even whether you have a coach or you're self-coached or maybe you're just not interested in coaching and you just want to go have fun out there on your bike or in your run, you're going to learn something from today that's going to make you better. So I hope you enjoy today's episode with Dr. Steven Seiler. And there is so much information out there that this great man has put out. Search him on other podcasts as well because you will get something different every time you listen to him. Welcome to the show, Dr. Seiler. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we've already kind of started. <laughs> we were chatting and I had, I had to interrupt you to hit the record button because you were saying so many great <laughs> things already. I was like, wait, I have to catch this. So just to get back to where I interrupted you, you were saying that there's so much data coming in right now with all of the different devices that we have. It's like drinking out of a fire hose and it's hard to stay on top of how much data we have versus where the technology is. So can you just continue on that tangent? Yeah, well, I got on that tangent because you told me about your background with electrical engineering and stuff, stuff like that. So you obviously have a, a your technology savvy, and that's kind of the whole development. We're in this this rapid ramping up. I, I was in the the lab today with with an athlete from a professional cycling team, and and uh, and it's you know they're these new kids, these nineteen year olds today. They're used to starting every workout with, by pushing several buttons to start their various devices that now capture power, capture heart rate. He was wearing a shirt that captures ventilation. Wow. You know, a, a, a wearable that we're working with, and we're measuring lactate, and 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 so that's just where we are today. But it's just like a 
you know, a F-18 fighter pilot or whatever the newest F-35, I don't know, whatever the newest thing is. But anyway, they're going fast and they need to keep their eyes on the prize, right? But they also need to have some data. So what do they have? They have a heads up display and which which raises the key variables and key numbers up to where they can keep their eyes looking forward but see the data and that's kind of what we need for sports for athletes for coaches is we kind of want to say all right let's out of all these different variables that are on the console here what matters what what matters in the heat of the moment from day to day and and then try to give them good access to those numbers in a, in a, in a understandable way so that they can make those basic day-to-day decisions about the training process. You know, do I train as planned? Do I adjust? Do I take a rest day? You know, it, it comes down to some basic decisions, uh, but it's built up around a bunch of data that you kind of have to kind of have a gestalt feeling about, right? You know, it's kind of, <laughs> You know, it's just, well, his heart rate's a little low, and but the heart rate variability says this, and the lactate says this, and the, his perceived exertion was this, and she, you know, and, and so it, the coach is still has to have a bit of a artistic or a the feeling, you know, in, in German, I think it's called Fingerspitzgefühl, uh, just <laughs> that it's just, you look at the athlete, you look in their eyes, and you can feel whether they're ready or they're tired or they're, you know what I mean? So when it comes down to it, it's still tacit knowledge, if you know what I mean by that term. Coaches, good coaches have something we call tacit knowledge. It's just they don't always know how they know, but they can look, they can see how their athletes move and they can look at their athletes' expressions. They can hear what they're saying and they make good decisions. So with all the technology, there's still there's still an importance or a value to just that, you know, the, what's up, up inside the head of good coaches, I think. Yeah. And also just the, the athlete to understand their body and how they feel, because oh, yeah. with all this data, it can really throw you off. And I'll share a funny story. I don't know if it's funny or not, but I just did my first race. I just did my first mountain bike race back in three years. Cause I had, I had two kids in the last three years and the pandemic, the Canadian border was closed. So I couldn't race. So my first race back was a hundred mile mountain bike race in Oregon. And it was at a moderate altitude and I live at sea level and I wear a whoop device. And I, I think that whoop is a bit over like people over index on what it means. And they, like, they put way too much like faith in what the whoop says and they don't listen to their own body. So for people listening, I woke up the morning of the race, the day before the race, I'm just learning how to manage. I have a four month old baby and a two-year-old I'm like managing my pre-race prep. And it's just completely like <laughs> not what it used to be. And my whoop score was 1% recovery. And I have never <laughs> seen that in my entire, like I've been wearing whoop for years. I was like 1%. Almost wow. dead. <laughs> yeah. Like I am the worst I could possibly be. And someone could like, look at this whoop score and they're going into a hundred mile mountain bike race and think, well, I shouldn't even line up for the race. Or they think I'm going to feel terrible. And that becomes the reality is that you do feel terrible because you think you're going right. to feel terrible. Cause whoop, and, whoop told you to. <laughs> yeah. So like I've had lots of days where it told me that I was going to feel really good and I didn't. And lots of days where I felt terrible or like vice versa, where it said I was going to feel good, you know, terrible. And I felt really good. So went out to the race with my 1% whoop score and, and I felt fine, you know, aside from like going a little bit too hard for the altitude that I was at <laughs> relearning how to race uh, my bike. But yeah. So the data that I'm just long story long is that I think we put too much trust in what some of these algorithms tell us about the uh, actual data. Oh, you, you are onto something really important is just because you, just because you throw numbers at us doesn't mean those numbers are useful. And I, I don't want to be negative to any specific product, but I think whoop is, is very typical for the field in that they, they land on a few things that you can measure like heart rate variability. And then they try to, stretch it out and create lots of other rings around that core measurement. But with each ring, the validity just keeps going down, 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 down. Right. And so you're trying to market a product that's going to tell you about your sleep and your, you know, how you're doing with your boyfriend and, and all this stuff. <laughs> and it's just, it's not, it can't. And and so unfortunately that's part of the technology development is that yes there are some good technologies but there are also some technologies that are not mature 
enough yet, but they're being pushed and they're creating perhaps just as much confusion as they are creating clarity. Yeah, I think so we personally, have, that's part of the challenge. Sorry. I think personally yeah. with the whoop, just staying on this tangent is that for me, I know that the numbers aren't the absolute numbers and they might not even be that accurate, but I notice that if I am wearing it, it reminds me that I should be prioritizing my sleep. It, re- it just reminds me of yeah. the habits yeah. that I want to have. And while the numbers might not be the exact thing or the algorithm might not be right, it still helps me stay on track with the habits that I want to promote. Yeah. And that can be worth a whole lot. So, so we can't, what should I say? We shouldn't see around or not, or not respect that reality, which is just to helping athletes tune in mentally to certain things. Like for example, just like you say, I'm, I'm using a wearable technology to measure ventilation because we've never been able to measure ventilation outside the laboratory in a, in a, in a valid way and, and, and breathing Every athlete knows that breathing tells you a lot. I mean, you you can hear the fatigue of the other athlete in their breathing when you come up beside them. You feel it in yourself when you start, you know, you, you get to your limit. So it's an interesting tool, but just, just measuring it also makes me think about it and makes me think about not going, you know, learning to, to try to get bigger tidal volume to, to use my lungs better when it's starting to really get nasty, you know? And so again, it's just a, I wouldn't say placebo effect, but it's just a, it's focusing me on thinking, you know, breathing matters. Uh, when you're starting to really struggle, you have a tendency for your breathing to get a bit herky jerky and you're not breathing in a very effective way. So, you know, just measuring it has, has tuned me into those things. So, uh, there is value just to that, even if the numbers are not perfect. Uh, I agree with you there, but I would like the numbers to also be really good. Yeah, it <laughs> sounds know? like and respiratory training is something that's really interesting you right now. Well, actually, not so much. I, I'm not so sure that that we need to train the respiratory muscles. I, I think they're probably that's not the limiting factor. But what I'm really interested in in this breathing issue is is number one it captures some aspects of stress during workouts that that heart rate doesn't so it's a complimentary it's a vital sign you know i've said to other people that if you go into the hospital and you're unconscious and they wheel you in what are they going to do they're going to measure your heart rate and they're going to measure breathing those are the first two things they'll do right because those are the vital signs right and now i got the air quotes going so but we've always just had heart rate for the last four or five decades in the field for sports. I think now being able to move breathing over into the, into the field will be a useful tool, but, but we're working on it. Now, what I was going to say is one of the things I found is that this notion or this idea of breathing of just nose breathing, where you just close your mouth and, and breathe just through the nasal passages Wow, that uh, that is really, you know, it's almost meditative and it is, I, I think it's good for my sinuses. And I, think, I think it may even help. I think research needs to be done on this, but with using nose breathing during training, it might translate to, to better sleep if you sleep with less mouth breathing, you know, because a lot of people open, they get sleep apnea and all these different things. So that's that's one of the things we're looking at is is just that it uh, turns out that you know the nasal passages they were designed to to warm up the air and filter it and do a lot of things that doesn't happen when you breathe through your mouth. So uh I've gotten to the, I've gotten where I can do 3 4 hour rides you know just breathing through my nose. Um uh, and I have a big nose so that I don't make fun of me but I don't think that's the only reason I think it's trainable. I think it, you know, we can get better at it. And I think it's probably good for our uh, health. It's, you know, there's data that shows you, you have less risk of infections and a lot of different things. So, so anyway, I think breathing is one of the frontiers that we were exploring and trying to move out of the laboratory. That's the big thing is, is it's, it's no longer just a, a laboratory measurement. And, and that's true for a lot of stuff. And it's kind of that technology we were talking about is, you know, you're a cyclist, you know, the cyclists have just basically said, well, we don't go to the lab anymore because <laughs> they, they don't, they don't feel like they need to, they have power, they have lactate, they have, you know, they have a, they feel like they have a lot of data without going in the lab. 
Yeah. I, as a cyclist though, I'll say that, and, and like a kind of a nerd, I like being able to control as much as I can whenever I'm doing an experiment on myself. So if you're in the same environment on the same trainer, you know, trying to measure something, it's easier to see if something has improved or if something that you're doing is changing something versus if you're going outside, the variables are really hard to hold. Like you can't hold as many things constant. So I actually like the idea of the lab for trying to see if something's working or not. Yeah. Yeah. And here's the deal. And and I was having this discussion is because I'm like you, I was raised in that lab world. I was trained there and that's what we do. We're reductionists. We control everything, you know, and we tell them now, you know, no caffeine and no this and no that and no hard training the day before and da, 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 da. And we create all these conditions and and it it actually becomes kind of artificial because in the daily grind, they are using caffeine and they are, aren't always sleeping and there are, you know, they are training every day. So they're, somewhat fatigued from day to day. And so, so that's the reality. So lab is one off and, you know, we get one measurement, we maybe get them in the lab two or three times a year, but nowadays we can collect data on their power and their, you know, heart rate every day, every darn day. And so we can paint a mosaic of data And yes, there's noise from day to day, but when you're getting the data every day, then the variability smooths out. You with me? Mm -hmm. And so we can construct things like power duration curves and so forth that actually end up being quite, quite strong, quite, you know, they're, they're robust because now we're getting so much data. We're overcoming the one-off problem. So even though from day to day, yes, there's some noise we overcome it with lots of data points. So those are the two, you know, there's two ways to get at this. And and I agree with you that a little bit of both is probably nice. That's why I have a a cycling room upstairs. (laughs) It's almost like my lab. Uh, Because yeah, I can control things really well. But I also know that real cycling happens out in the real world. So those realities also need to be, um, you know, part of the mix. Yeah, and this sort of brings us back to the conundrum that we started with of so much data. How do you know what data like you should pay attention to and how do you optimize and how do you understand how to go off of feel? Because I think what you're talking about a little bit is that, yeah, a lot of us didn't get enough sleep the night before. It's not an ideal environment whenever we go out to do our workout and to understand how hard you should go in that workout if you're going off of like what you think your FTP is that's that number is going to be different every single day, depending on how you're feeling. So how do you actually learn how to go off of feel, but also look at the data and make good decisions? Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the things that distinguishes champions uh, in our work. And, you know, we've had the luxury of being able to measure a lot of Olympic gold medalists and so forth. And, and, and one of the things that distinguishes them is number one, they have what I call intensity discipline. They're very, they have a, you know, they plan the work and work the plan. So if, if today's plan is a three hour easy ride, then they keep it easy and they are not, they're not going to let some showboat that cycles by them, you know, you know, that says, ha, ah, I just w- went by the gold medalist. Uh, they don't care, you know, because they know what they're good for. So that's one thing is intensity discipline. But the other thing they do is they triangulate you know, in triangulation, uh, science folks, we like triangulation, meaning that we use two or three different methodologies. So what I want to help my athlete do is, is calibrate their perception with some numbers. So what do we measure? Well, in cycling, we can measure power. So we can measure what we call that external load and we can measure the internal load, which is some physiology through heart rate, through ventilation, through blood lactate. And then we can measure perception. We can use metrics like perceived exertion, the rating of perceived exertion, or we can do it more qualitatively, just how did you feel? But that triangle then gives us a kind of a checks and balances system, like a well-functioning government, which they don't, not all countries have anymore. But the idea is that the different, the different bodies of the government kind of serve as checks and balances around and, and keep things from getting distorted. Well, that's how triangulation works with monitoring as well. And so uh, I think athletes, well, I, I, one of my colleagues used to, to measure blood lactate. You know, he worked with the, the national rowing team in Norway. And he said, those guys, 
he could, he would take a lactate. They would be at altitude camps. You know, they'd be doing some workout and he'd take a, you, you know, use the lactate monitor and he's, and they'd say, ah, it feels like that was about 3.2, you know, and, and he'd say, ah, well, it was 3.3, you know, I mean, they were just so close. They, they were so calibrated. And I think that's part of, part of the job of being a, a high-performance athlete is you got to be tuned in. You have to be able to really feel what's going on in your body and make these decisions about, you know, how far do I stretch, how far do I stretch that rubber band on this workout today? And when do I call it quits? And then the other thing is they have a, they're thinking big picture. You know, you, you've been a high performance athlete and you know that a training year consists of hundreds of, uh, of workouts. I don't know what your number was, but maybe you trained 500 times a year. Were you training double workouts a day on some days? Not usually. I, I was doing a bit of running last year, so I was doing doubles when I was running. But um, no, I, I train usually just six days a week and one workout a day. Okay. Yeah. And cyclists tend to be, they tend to do single, single workouts, but they're longer. But at any rate, there's a number. Like last year, my number was 314. I did 314 workouts that's about six days a week. And I was very pleased with that because that was kind of my goal. I managed to stay healthy. And so that's a lot of workouts. And when you start, if you start talking about the effect of any one workout on performance, it's infant, it's very tiny. It's not even measurable uh, in the noise, but yet when you add it all together and you have a good training season, good things tend to happen. And so that's, that's what the elite performers understand is it's not the epic workout that, that wins medals. It's the consistency, the continuity, you know, staying healthy, knowing when to back off 10% so that you're able to fight the next day. You know, it's, it's that it's sometimes you got to lose the battle to win the war in the sense that you make small adjustments and you, you back off sometimes in order to be able to sustain that, that high training load over time. Yeah, I could not agree more. <laughs> I talk about that a lot consistency and then her, you know, consistency over heroic efforts because the her one heroic effort is just a data point and it could be an outlier and not the norm. Yeah. And it could bury you for three days. And so when you look <laughs> back, you, you ended up training less in total because that epic workout just busted you, you know? And so that's not, we don't always think about that reality. So a lot of people listening to this are not quote high performance. Like they're not racing at the top level. They're not professionals. And they're probably thinking, well, how do I know how I feel? And my husband's asked me this so many times, cause I know exactly how I feel and, and what I need to be doing <laughs> most of the times. But he's like, well, how do you know that? How do you figure that out? So like, how yeah. does somebody begin to understand what that is supposed to feel like? Yeah, that's a great question. It's 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 like it's asking a piano player, how do you know when the notes are right? And and, and a or a you know, it's it, there is something about doing it many many times and and both experiencing flow where you know we've all done really hard workouts, let's say an interval session, but you were in a state of flow. I mean, you were you were just on the ragged edge but you were in control and you get an experience for what that feels like that it's a kind of a pacing problem right even workouts have have pacing aspects to it and so like you say okay today i'm going to do five times eight minutes at some goal power or roughly and and you kind of know after the first eight minute bout kind of what it's going to feel like the progression right you can extrapolate mentally there's a term for this it's called teleo anticipation you know our brains can take our present perceptual data about how hard is this feeling and so forth and then say okay now i'm projecting the rate of fatigue to try to decide am i going to get across the finish line at this pace right and it's remarkable that that high performance you know or not just high performance athletes but anybody that practices a bit you pretty quickly find the right pace. If I say, go out, run 10, 10 kilometers as fast as you can, within about a half a kilometer, a kilometer, you're zeroed in. 
on what you think is going to be Hopefully. your pace. Or, or you might be so blown up from starting too hard that your pace Yeah, is- <laughs> yeah. So, so you're not going to make the mistake of sprinting the first 200 meters more than about one time uh, before <laughs> you understand that you've got to, you've got to project things forward. So that's just, it's, it, the brain is capable of doing it and athletes tap into that, that, perception but it also is something they do in workouts and, and so forth and over time they they learn a bit about i think we learn about this idea of holding back retreating from the battle to win the war that you can't go out every day and go full gas you can't go hard every day and that's a lot of what my research has been about is about this idea of polarized or 80 20 and and that athletes have figured this out right and it's not just high performance athletes. It works for regular, you know, people training seven hours a week, eight hours a week, 10 hours a week like me. Man, we have so much to gain by getting this kind of intensity distribution reasonably right. Uh, we recover better. We get better progress. We enjoy training more. And it's amazing how often I, people talk and say, you know what? I'm running faster than I have in years. And I feel like I'm training easier. You know, it's quite interesting to hear that from people, but that's, that's a very common response I get. You know, they, they say, you know, it took me a while to figure this out, but, but you're right. You know, my keeping my easy sessions easy. I've got, I feel good when I do the hard sessions and I've PR the last, you know, my 10 K or something, you know, so it works not just for the high performance athletes. It scales down this idea. Yeah. Can you go more into that, your model of periodization? Because I still think that a lot of people have heard of it, but they still don't actually do it. And I just, I ride easy a lot too. And I see people just going hard every single day or people like, Hey, let's go for a ride. And they're just like hammering as hard as they can. And it's like, Uh, we're just supposed to be riding or even this race. I I did this race in Columbia in 2017 and it was a stage race and it was the day before the race. It was supposed to be just like an easy ride. And everyone was just going so hard. And I was the only one that (laughs) dropped out. I I just was like, I'm not doing this. I turned around and went home and that's hard to do. Like a lot of people will feel like, Oh, I'm not good enough. Or like, there's a psychology piece to being able to being brave enough and having the confidence to go easy when you need to go easy. You are so right. And that's like I said, man, that is what distinguishes champions is that self-confidence to say they, they know what they're good for. I mean, they know that, you know, dude, bro, come back tomorrow. You know, they, they some guys runs past them or cycles past them. It's often guys. So I'm using guys as an example because they're just, you know, guys tend to just compete and everything. And and so they they start half wheeling each other. And, you know, the, the really good ones will just let this, they'll just let them go, you know, because they know that they, in their mind, they're thinking, you know, tomorrow I've got a heel session. I'm going to be doing. 20 minute repeats on this tough vertical. And uh, these guys are welcome to come back tomorrow and ride with me. And we'll see about what, who's boss, you know, but they, they just don't invest their ego in this kind of stuff because they're playing at a different level. Right. But that takes time to be secure in your, in yourself. I mean, good grief. I'm, I'm the same on Zwift. Someone rides past me. You know, my first instinct is, what you ain't doing that, you know, and I'm going to, but then I try to remember what I, what I preach. And so I try to be smart. Uh, and, and at least a fair percentage of the time I'm able to pull it off, but that is kind of at the heart of development for athletes is thinking, what is my plan for me today? You know, work my plan and don't let other people's craziness mess me up yeah because if if i know you know they're going too hard because you're they're racing in two days well just let them go because you don't get any medals for winning the workout you win the race so that's that's part of the deal is knowing when you're gonna empty the tank and you don't empty the tank on an easy pre-race workout (laughs) right So, so it's just you would think it's the things we're saying here are obvious, but they go against our kind of instincts 
because we're competitive people. The non-competitive people, the people that go out and run just for the joy of it, they don't have the same problem. (laughs) But all of us type A competitive people, we're the ones that have to figure out how to trick our brains and find ways to distract and listen to a podcast or do whatever we can to, you know, during an indoor ride like I do (laughs) to keep calm, you know, just say, no, chill, you know. Just keep it down. <laughs> Let them go. Listen to your podcast. Keep your 200 watts, you know. <laughs> and so uh, I think that's uh, kind of part of the zen of training that you have to learn through some hard knocks. Yeah, just hearing of you describe that experience, like I feel like my body tightening up because I want to start just like hammering too. And that experience, just it just never goes away. Like even if you have been, you know, doing endurance sports your entire life, even if you're a foremost researcher on the topic, even if you're insanely competitive, you just still don't like it when somebody passes you no matter what, but you have to look and say, what is my plan? And like you said, find a way to calm yourself because it's hard when someone, like I actually get very angry when people pass me and I've actually heard myself cussing under my breath at them because I'm so just like, ah, but I have to keep that in check. And it's funny. It's it's funny to see the competitive drive come out and then to understand that we have to have the discipline to not blow it at that moment. <laughs> yeah, and there was a good story. Like I was riding on Zwift a couple of years ago and it was like a Saturday morning ride. And all of a sudden I realized, hey, I'm riding with Cadell Evans, former Tour de France winner. You know, and now he's retired and he's in his 40s and I'm in my 50s and I'm thinking, I'm keeping up with Cadell Evans. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so, and at some point he had to go do something with a kid or pee or something. And, 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 and then that's when we understood, okay, he's still so much better than we are because he just time trialed back to us, right? At, uh-huh. at six watts per kg or whatever. Yeah. And I was like, okay, you're still the dude, you're the boss. But when he was riding for, I think it was Oracle Green Edge, a colleague of mine was telling me about how, you know, they're on a training camp. It's early in the season. I mean, it's like January and they're doing, they're at, they're at some altitude camp and, and they're going to do some climbing. And the, the young guys are like, uh, why is he not going harder? Because, he, he, you know, they didn't feel like he was going that hard. And, and they said, well, I'm not going to ask him. You ask him. No, I'm not going to ask him. You know, it's, it's Cadell Evans. And so finally, one of these youngsters went over and asked him, well, you know, Cadell, mate, you know, you're, you're the best in the world, but you don't seem to be pushing these, these interval sessions, these climbs very hard. And he says, well, mate, <laughs> it's a long season and it's January and I've got to pace myself. You know, I'm, I'm going to be at my best in July. And so he he was basically telling the guys, you know, you can't turn every workout into a race or you're not going to be where you want to be when it matters. And, and so that was that wisdom of the experienced athlete that is thinking he's not only pacing or she's not only pacing her workouts or her, you know, time trials, but you pace your training. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You know, you're, you're, you're pacing the whole training process from day to day, week to week and month on month so that it is sustainable. Now, I know that word is overused and worn out, but it is an appropriate concept for athletes to embrace that if the training process is not sustainable, then the, the goals that they have will not be attainable. And you have to live through that. That's, that's successful training. When you ask athletes, you know, was this a good training year for you? They don't talk about epic workouts. They talk about, yeah, I stayed healthy. I had very few injuries. I had great continuity. You know, I had, I was, I accomplished about 97% of my planned workouts. That's how they measure the success of the season, not uh, the the one epic workout where they did 20 times 400 meters on the track, you know, you know what I'm saying? So that's, I think we can learn from that. Yeah. That goes back to that champion mindset that you're talking about. You mentioned thinking big picture. So for the listener who isn't familiar with periodization, who isn't familiar with 80, 20, who isn't even familiar with training in different zones, 
Can you give kind of a layman's overview of what that means in the research that you've, I know you've done a lot of research, so it's hard to yeah. kind of summarize it, but can you try to do that for the person who's not familiar? Well, the, the bottom line is, is that when you measure the best, what you find is they can't go hard every day and they figure that out. And, and in fact, they go, you know, as a, a rule of thumb, that's where this 80-20 comes from, is that maybe eight out of every 10 training sessions they do, and they obviously train a lot, uh, eight out of every 10 will be at, for them, a pace that is, is comfortable. It's manageable. It's talking pace. It's, it's a pace that they can actually be talking to their, the person beside them. They can be enjoying the scenery. You know, they can be distracted a bit by the external environment. So that's, it's enjoyable, you know, now, let's face it, they're doing this a lot of hours. So a lot of us wouldn't be able to even wouldn't be able to stay at the intensity, even those easy intensities for as long as they can. But they're they're accumulating a lot of time at a sustainable, comfortable pace. And then they have, you know, maybe 20% of those training sessions, they're they're tough. They they're intense and they're tough, they're long and they're hard and, and often race pace or or, or close. So that's that that polarized model that we've seen is quite a lot of low intensity, some high intensity, and then managing that that balance. Why? Well, it's because it, it seems to be because number one, the low intensity sessions work. They do create adaptations in the body, but they they work through mostly through duration. So intensity is a bit lower, but duration is a lot longer. So we still get a great signal for adaptation, build mitochondria, build capillaries, improve heart function, all of these things. But the recovery time is, is shorter. And so I often talk about that most of the workouts you do as an endurance athlete, you need to recover from in 24 hours. Why? Well, because if you want to train basically daily, then that's the that's the the clock, right? The clock's at the end of every workout. Now the recovery clock starts, and it needs to tick down to full recovery or reasonably full recovery in 24 hours. If every workout is taking longer than 24 hours to recover from, then what happens? Well, if you're training every day, then you're gonna slowly fall apart, right? So these easy sessions allow recovery. They create, you know, they keep below the stress radar. And then occasionally or, you know, regularly, but a couple times a week, for example, we're going to do those harder sessions where now it's going to take maybe 48 hours to recover, even 72 if it's a really tough workout. But we've created room for that in the plan. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Something that so, I so wanted to bring up was, going back to algorithms and data and numbers, I just started using a Garmin. I was using a Wahoo for a number of years and just for fun, just seeing like what these different computers do. <laughs> and I noticed that the Garmin will say, it's going to take you this many hours to recover or like you're acclimated to this number after one workout. How much, <laughs> yeah. like how do people take that data? Cause a lot of people don't have a coach and they don't know themselves how to, how to understand that data. So how can somebody sort of extrapolate what's best for them based on that? Yeah, I, I guess my first thought is guys and gals take all of those numbers with a big grain of salt uh, because let's face it, and, and I, I work with companies and I understand they're, they're trying to, to sell a product, but let's take a heart watch. You know, I've got one on here and it has the optical sensor. So it's got this, the little green lights that flash and, 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 and this company that makes this watch, the most profitable way for them to work is to have one piece of hardware and then lots of algorithms connected to the one piece of hardware because then production costs are lower, right? You know, if they can start eliminating external stuff like belts and all this stuff and just have the one device well that's a better business model and then you attach lots of algorithms to that hardware and those algorithms are soft they're fuzzy right 
And they're trying to tell us that they can measure our caloric consumption, they can measure our sleep, they can measure our recovery and, and different things. But it it gets, like I was saying earlier, it gets just fuzzier and fuzzier the, the farther you go away from the core technology that that, that that device is designed to do. And what's that? Measure heart rate. That's it. Everything else makes lots of assumptions and plugs in lots of algorithms and it becomes a bit of a black box. So just keep that in mind when you're using these things is the farther you go away from what it, its core function, measure heart rate, right? You know, mm-hmm. and they can do that potentially well, but, but be for every step outside of that box, be very, be more and more suspicious and less and less confident in those numbers. You know, when it tells you uh, your VO2 max is 62 <laughs> and your, you know, your, your favorite color is green based on our data. And, you know, that, come on, you know, uh, this is, this is marketing, unfortunately. So you talked about, you know, the 80, 20 rule and how it's important to keep your easy days easy. And then on your hard days, you want to really dig in and go hard, but a mistake that most people make is that they go kind of moderate all the time. Their easy isn't easy enough and the hard isn't hard enough. So how can somebody know where they're supposed to be? Well, uh, all right. So, um, you know, of course, in a lab, we can measure lactate. We can do kinds of things and establish these various thresholds. But for the average person that doesn't do all that that stuff, uh, easy should feel enjoyable. Uh, literally, that you should actually be able to think, you know, I'm, in, I'm kind of enjoying this. You know, I, I'm not <laughs> suffering. <laughs> Amazingly enough, and I can actually, like I was saying, uh, some indicators, some poor person's indicators that you're in the right zone when you're doing that easy session, that low intensity session. I, I don't like the word easy because it suggests that we're lazy. It's just, it's purposeful, it's intentional, but it's based on finding the right balance between intensity and duration. So we're stretching in the duration direction. And so what, what I tell people is number one, that again, talking pace that you should be able to be distracted. You should be able to hold that watt count or that pace without having to really concentrate. Right. Because one of the things that happens, there's almost like this threshold, I would call it the concentration threshold where at low intensity, you can, you can divert brain function to other thoughts besides holding the pace or the power. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You can be think talking about whatever you can be looking. Oh, wow. The flowers are blooming here. Oh, that's kind of fun. Oh, did you smell? Did you smell that? That didn't smell good. Uh, did we just go by a farm? You know? And so you're thinking about lots of stuff and the brain is able to do that because you're not, you, you haven't passed that, that concentration threshold. But then once you get to a certain intensity where it gets pretty tough, now you start to have to zoom inward. You start to have to, to monitor your, to everything. You know, you're starting to feel how my legs feel, how my, how's my breathing? You know, your brain is scanning. You know what I mean? You're, you're doing, it's almost like the brain goes into scanning modus and it is scanning all the systems and making evaluations. Can we hold this power? Is this okay? Am I on, I'm on the right on the edge, right? Well, that's, that's, then we're in that, we've gone into that high intensity or that, that, you know, that hard session type of, of mentality. Well, you can't do that every day, right? It's mentally exhausting. So that's one of the distinguishing things is you should feel comfortable, be distracted. We don't usually listen to music when we're cycling because it's dangerous, but it would be the kind of thing you could do. You know, you would just, you're chilling and you're in the zone, you're, you're smooth and you're, and the other thing you will often feel is that after those low intensity sessions, maybe it's two hours on the bike, maybe it's a, a 75 minute run. You can come straight in and basically go straight to the dinner table. Your appetite is there because you're kind of empty. Those workouts make you feel empty versus high intensity workouts. You feel poisoned in a way because you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. In a way you are because you've built up a lot of metabolic waste products that are, that give that, that actually feel like almost toxic. You know, you're just, you, you know, you're, you're exhausted and it takes time before your appetite comes back because blood flow has moved away from the, 
the the gut and out and and so it takes longer for your body to kind of re-equilibrate so that you can even think about eating so that's another uh kind of a poor person's uh, uh threshold where you can feel you know did i stay on that that side of that low intensity side that low stress side because we're trying to avoid triggering that big stress response during those those low intensity sessions does that make any sense to you mm-hmm, for sure um so so those things you can feel without even measuring heart rate but then after a while you, you can also start to see okay in this heart rate area this is good for me and and another thing that that i can tell you if you if you wear a heart rate monitor and if it's a good one and it works uh you know you get good measurements then the other thing I would say to people is if you are doing that low intensity session where the goal is just to be down in that fat burning intensity and, and, and steady heart rate should come up at first. And, but by about 15 minutes into the workout, it should flatten out and it should stay flat. It shouldn't just keep going up, up, up. Okay. If it is going up, up, up the whole workout, you're working too hard. Either that or it's 105 degrees Fahrenheit and you're training in extreme heat and you just cooked. That'll also do it to you. Uh, I say that because I I think probably a lot of people are experiencing some tough outdoor conditions. So I, I have to say that. But under normal circumstances, we should be able to keep that heart rate flat, drink, stay ventilated and so forth. And heart rate shouldn't just drift up. Now, if you go long enough, it will start to drift up, but at least for a, for 90 minutes, for 75 minute run or something, it should be pretty darn flat. And what about when you can't get your heart rate up? Ah, there you go. Usually what that means is you're tired. It means the brakes are on. The autonomic nervous system is, is telling us it is strained. And so this is a really important thing you bring up because there's two ways things can go. There are days where your heart rate may feel too, it'll be too high. You know, maybe you did a tough strength training session and your legs are sore and that you go out the next day and your heart rate's too high. It's, it's high, 10 beats higher than normal. And that, that makes kind of sense. And what's trickier are those days where you've been doing some pretty good volume or you've had a couple of races on the weekend. And then all of a sudden you go out to work out and your heart rate's 10 beats lower than normal at a given pace or power. Now, then you got to do something with that information. And and the instinct will often be what? Oh, I must be in shape. I got to go harder, right? My heart rate's low. I got to add 25 watts. That's the death spiral, okay? Because that heart rate's lower because you're tired. Your body is fatigued. The entire autonomic nervous system, that sympathetic side, that fight or flight side is the brakes are on. The body is trying to say, tell you, slow down. And, and if you fight that and misinterpret the signals, then things get even worse. And that's where we get into those overreaching and worst case scenario, overtraining situations that can lead to a long term decline in performance. So when, when we feel that the brakes are on, the, how do you solve it? Rest. That is the only way is you got to give your body you ease off, you know, easy workouts, rest day. And while we're on the topic, <laughs> rest days are not sinful. They're not a sign of weakness. They are critical to long-term performance is having confidence enough to take a rest day when you need it. I mean, full on rest day. Does that make, you know what I'm saying? Not a rest day. I actually love rest days. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, good grief. And if you're, and also if you're a normal person with a job and kids and everything, then rest days are when you get, pardon the French, but that's when you get shit done, you know, because now you've saved two or three hours, (laughs) you know, because you're not training that day. And you can actually reduce your stress, your total stress, because you say, ah, now I can get the bills paid. I can do some extra stuff because I've freed up some time. This is my rest day. Oh, you know, and, and so it's both physically you're recovering, but also often psychologically, it just frees up a bit of time. 
in, in for people who have multiple issues to deal with. Uh, that's life, right? Not everyone is a pro athlete that is just eat, sleep, repeat, eat, sleep, train, repeat. That, that's not the normal situation for most of us. So I like my rest. I like Mondays off in a day where I, you know, I'm not doing much hard training. I may, you know, and it feels great. <laughs> I'm actually going to argue a little bit about the rest day now, because this is something I've had to learn the hard way. I've been a professional athlete for a long time, but I have a very difficult time doing the sleeping, riding, and just, and I, ha I have to have other things going on for myself because I just really like that mental stimulation. So on your rest days, if there's too much mental stimulation, I learned that that can actually increase physical fatigue. Too much mental fatigue can impact your physical performance. So on your rest day, if you're doing way too much stuff, you know, I'm going to do way more mental things than I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Then I'm with you. That's not enough rest. So it's hard to figure out for yourself on your rest day. Like it's not realistic for any of us to just sit around and do nothing all day on our Monday. Cause we have to work or kids or whatever, but not overdoing the tasks on your rest day too. No, I agree with you. And that's a good corrective on what I say. It's not like you want to just load up the rest day with, with so much stuff that it becomes a, a marathon in itself. So I totally agree. And you're right. There's research that shows, for example, university scholarship athletes during their exam periods, those, they, those periods, they respond poorly to training. Uh, they literally, because the brain is stressed, it, there's brain body connections that we don't all understand hormonal and so otherwise that, change the atmosphere of the body and, and reduce the, the adaptive response. So when athletes are stressed uh, by other stuff, academic stress, work, you know, uh, relationship stress or, or so forth, it can directly impact how they respond to training. Our evolutionary bodies, you know, our evolutionary systems are not that they don't distinguish this, this idea of stress. It's, it's, a, it's kind of one bucket for the body and the brain in the, the total stress load, it can be coming from many directions, but it's not just the physical training. It's everything else. It's the anxiety of fear of getting infections. It's all these different things are hitting us, you know? And so that's a really worthwhile point to keep in mind and, and, and just be cognizant of it. Good coaches, for example, I've talked to some and they say, yeah, my university coach, my rowing coach, when we had exam periods, he just reduced the training load with two sessions a week. He, he cut out two sessions a week just to try to create more room because he knew that we couldn't handle, you know, we were struggling. So he, you know, that was a, pro, a proactive or prophylactic training load reduction. Yeah, that's such a great nugget for people to take away is that stress there's one bucket labeled stress and your body doesn't care, you know, or differentiate between all the different things that you're doing. It just, once that bucket is full, that bucket is full. So you might need to reduce input so that that bucket doesn't overfill. Yeah. You know, and there's a guy named Marco Altini. He, and I'm not trying to sell a product, but he has this heart rate variability, HRV for training.com and where you can measure heart rate variability, just using the, the phone and the, the light, you know, you put your finger on the camera and uh works really well validated and he's done such great he's presented such great data from thousands and thousands of people and it can just he just can show how heart rate variability which is an indication of parasympathetic sympathetic balance how it can it goes down in 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 just population wise when these things like the pandemic hit you know that that just stressors that they you can just see a population-wide change in heart rate variability. So it's quite fascinating. Uh, you know, like you say, it's this one bucket reality that, that, that people, you know, we've been through a two, three-year period with a lot of anxiety. You know, there's enough anxiety to go around always, but this last couple of years has been particularly uh, full of angst for a lot of people, job security, uh, many different aspects to it. Uh, so, so this is, this has been a part of the reality and I think it's affected the training of a lot of people. Uh, some people have been able to train better than usual because they've been isolated, you know, they've working from home and everything, but a lot of people found that it was, it was really tough to, to come, to come through. And, and now we're finally hopefully getting on the other side of a lot of that, but you know, 
it's a little unclear. It seems where COVID's going to be around for a while. Yeah, thanks for bringing up HRV because I think that has been something that most people now sort of have either come into contact with or understand or measure regularly and how that is something that people can look at and see how different changes in inputs in their life can impact their HRV and what that means for them. Yeah. But it's like everything else. You know, HRV is one of these things that if you you need to measure it regularly, you need to, you know, you need to do it day basically daily so that you establish these baselines and you can interpret what's going on well if you do it just here and there and randomly it's not going to be useful to you and in the top the people selling the products will tell you exactly the same thing is you know they if they're honest they'll say hrv can be a valuable tool but but the interpretation depends on you using it very regularly yeah, and then there can also be just like artifacts. Like I actually believe that that day, that race day that I was talking about when we first started, like my HRV is normally like 100 or like 90 and it was 30 on that day. And I think that that could have been and oh, just wow. just a data artifact, like the device wasn't working properly because yeah, I've never yeah. seen that before. So being able to look at it that way and say, well, this actually might just be some noise and it might not actually be true. Well, yeah, it could, and, and let's, uh, this is where things get problematic because like, for example, this type of watch, which is very common, I'm not going to tell the brand, some might be able to tell, but it's got the optical sensor. This is industry standard. It's at the wrist and it sucks. They don't work very well. <laughs> I'm just telling you the truth. And this is based on athlete feedback. This sensor at the wrist on a bony wrist with it, it easily gets light gaps it easily moves around it hits it doesn't get enough blood flow under there's not enough vascular tissue or vascularized tissue under the optical sensors it's just a terrible place to place this technology so even just moving the wrist watch up here gives better heart rate data and here's the four. He's showing his forearm for those of you who can't see. Yeah, it. <laughs> and literally moving it up a couple of inches, you know, to a point that it says, "Well, that's too high on my wrist." Yes, but for heart rate, it's better. So that would be if you're having trouble with your heart rate data and it's noisy and it's just move either one, get rid of that darn watch and go back to a heart rate belt, or go over either move the watch or buy one of these heart rate bands that go on the forearm or on the arm. They work great. I've used one for years. My daughter's used one for years and, and they are, they, that optical sensor, it's exactly the same technology, but now it's at a location on the body where you get nice blood flow under the sensor and you get better data. So I, now I'm getting all geeky and techie, but, but unfortunately that, Optical sensor technology just doesn't work very reliably for lots of people when it's at the wrist. Yeah, and you then you can get bad data. You can get HRV artifacts and all these things that confuse the crap out of people. Yeah, you actually recommended to me a different, I think it was the Polar Verity Sense, and that's not a, a sponsorship anything, but I started using that because... I was getting tired of using a chest strap because I felt that over a long period of time that actually restricts like respiratory and I would get soreness from wearing a strap, like a strap yeah. and wearing that up. I wear it up on my bicep and I wear it underneath my Jersey sleeve. And that's been just way more reliable. Even it's even worked better than chest straps that I've worn. So thanks for that recommendation. <laughs> yeah. You know, and like I said, I'm not selling anything, but, but it's just, yeah. this is just experience. And I've heard a lot of feedback to say the same thing is though the very sense the before that it was the OH one, the Polar OH1, which is what I still use, it just works. And and I mean, I get like one dropout a month, maybe literally one second of data that's off once a month. It's so nice and reliable. So I've just, I, I'm, I'm willing to give a plug for a technology that works, you know. Well, there's so much that we could have talked about. It was almost overwhelming trying to figure out what to bring up on the podcast today because you have so much expertise and our time is already up, but there's so many different places people can find you. You've done, you've done, gosh, I don't even know, hundreds of publications there. I thought I saw like eight, over 8,000 citations on Google. Like there's just so uh, much um, you've done in your body. Getting, work. Well, that's the, that's the advantage of getting old, you know, you, you, you slowly <laughs> do stuff. <laughs> so, so it's, it's a marathon, but yeah, people can find my stuff 
uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, so it's kind of a running dialogue going on there on Twitter, just my name uh, at Steven Seiler. And I have a YouTube channel. It's not something I do every day, but I do put out some videos on various topics. And then the publications, all the for those who want to actually read the research, you know, one of the best outlets is called ResearchGate. At least if you're a student or you have an affiliation with a university or you're a you know, in academia, then it's very easy to get all that stuff for free. All most most of my publications are available online for free via ResearchGate. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, and we'd love to have you back sometime. <laughs> sure, good conversation. So, thanks a lot. Thanks so much for listening to that episode. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe up to five stars on this podcast if you're enjoying it. That is the biggest thing you can do to help us out to make sure that the show finds others. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. We'll see you right back here next week. Bye.